This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 11 of A Damsel in Distress Read by Aspistachio in Waxhaw, North Carolina George opened the letter with trembling and reverent fingers. "'Dear Mr. Bevan, thank you ever so much for your note, which Albert gave to me. How very, very kind!' "'Aye, mister!' George looked up testily. The boy Albert had reappeared. "'What's the matter? Can't you find the cake?' "'I found the cake,' rejoined Albert, adducing proof of the statement in the shape of a massive slice, from which he took a substantial bite to assist thought. "'But I can't find the ginger ile.' George waved him away. This interruption at such a moment was annoying. "'Look for it, child, look for it, sniff after it, bay on its trail. It's somewhere about.' "'Right,' mumbled Albert through the cake. He flicked a crumb off his cheek with a tongue which would have excited the friendly interest of an anteater. "'I like ginger ile.' "'Well, go and bathe in it.' "'Right!' George returned to his letter. "'Dear Mr. Bevan, "'Thank you ever so much for your note, "'which Albert gave to me. "'How very, very kind of you to come here like this, "'and to say—' "'Hi, mister!' "'Good heavens!' George glared. "'What's the matter now? "'Haven't you found that ginger ale yet?' "'I found the ginger ale right enough, "'but I can't find the thing.' "'The thing? What thing?' "'The thing! The thing what you open ginger ile with!' "'Oh, you mean the thing! It's in the middle drawer of the dresser. Use your eyes, my boy.' "'Right.' George gave an overwrought sigh, and began the letter again. "'Dear Mr. Bevan, thank you ever so much for your note, which Albert gave to me. How very, very kind of you to come here like this, and to say that you would help me.' "'And how clever of you to find me after I was so secretive that day in the cab. "'You really can help me, if you are willing. "'It is too long to explain in a note, but I am in great trouble, "'and there is nobody except you to help me. "'I will explain everything when I see you. "'The difficulty will be to slip away from home. "'They are watching me every moment, I'm afraid. "'But I will try my hardest to see you very soon. "'Yours sincerely, Maud Marsh.' Just for a moment, it must be confessed, the tone of the letter dampened George. He could not have said just what he had expected, but certainly Reggie's revelations had prepared him for something rather warmer, something more in the style in which a girl would write to the man she loved. The next moment, however, he saw how foolish any such expectation had been. How on earth could any reasonable man expect a girl to let herself go at this stage of the proceedings? It was for him to make the first move. Naturally, she wasn't going to reveal her feelings until he had revealed his. George raised the letter to his lips and kissed it vigorously. "'Hi, mister!' George started guiltily. The blush of shame overspread his cheeks. The room seemed to echo with the sound of that fatuous kiss. "'Kitty, kitty, kitty!' he called, snapping his fingers and repeating the incriminating noise. "'I was just calling my cat,' he explained with dignity. "'You didn't see her in there, did you?' Albert's blue eyes met his in a derisive stare. The lid of the left one fluttered. It was but too plain that Albert was not convinced. 
"'A little black cat with white shirt-front,' babbled George perseveringly. "'She's usually either here or there or, or somewhere. Kitty, kitty, kitty!' The cupid's bow of Albert's mouth parted. He uttered one word. "'Swank!' There was a tense silence. What Albert was thinking one cannot say. The thoughts of youth are long, long thoughts. What George was thinking was that the late King Herod had been unjustly blamed for a policy which had been both statesmanlike and in the interests of the public. He was blaming the mawkish sentimentality of the modern legal system which ranks the evesecration and secret burial of small boys as a crime. "'What do you mean?' "'You know what I mean.' "'I've a good mind to—' Albert waved a deprecating hand. "'It's all right, mister. I'm your friend.' "'You are, are you? Well, don't let it about. I've got a reputation to keep up.' "'I'm your friend, I tell you. I can help you. I want to help you.' George's views on infanticide underwent a slight modification. After all, he felt, much must be excused to youth— Youth thinks it funny to see a man kissing a letter. It is not funny, of course. It is beautiful. But it's no good arguing the point. Let youth have its snigger, provided after it has finished sniggering it intends to buckle to and be of practical assistance. Albert, as an ally, was not to be despised. George did not know what Albert's duties as a page-boy were, but they seemed to be of a nature that gave him plenty of leisure and freedom— and a friendly resident of the castle with leisure and freedom was just what he needed. "'That's very good of you,' he said, twisting his reluctant features into a fairly benevolent smile. "'Well, I can help,' persisted Albert. "'Got a cigarette?' "'Do you smoke, child?' "'When I get hold of a cigarette, I do.' "'I'm sorry, I can't oblige you. I don't smoke cigarettes.' "'Then I'll have to have one of my own.' said Albert moodily. He reached into the mysteries of his pocket, and produced a piece of string, a knife, the wishbone of a fowl, two marbles, a crushed cigarette, and a match. Replacing the string, the knife, the wishbone, and the marbles, he ignited the match against the tightest part of his person, and lit the cigarette. Oh, "'I can help you. I know the ropes.' "'And smoke them,' said George, wincing. "'Pardon?' "'Nothing.' Albert took an enjoyable whiff. "'Ah, oh, I know all about you.' "'You do? You and Liddy Maud?' "'Oh, you do, do you?' "'I was listening at the keyhole when the row was going on.' "'There was a row, was there?' A faint smile of retrospective enjoyment lit up Albert's face. "'An awful row, shouting and yelling and cussing all over the shop, about you and Liddy Maud.' "'And you drank it in, eh? Pardon? I say you listened? Not half I listened. Seeing I'd just drawn you in a sweepstike, of course I listened. Not half.' George did not follow him here. "'The sweepstike? What's a sweepstike?' "'Why, a thing you puts names in hats and draws em, and the one that gets the winning name wins the money.' "'Oh, you mean a sweepstake. That's what I said, a sweepstike.' George was still puzzled. "'But I don't understand. How do you mean you drew me in a sweepstake? I mean a sweepstake. What sweepstake?' "'Down in the servants' hall. Kegs the butler started it. I heard him say—' 
He always had one every place he was as a butler, least to wise, whenever there was any daughters of the house. There's always a chance, when there's a house-party, of one of the daughters of the house getting married to one of the gents in the party. So Keggs, he puts all of the gents' names in the hat, and you pay five shillings for a chance, and the one that draws the winning name gets the money. And if the daughter of the house don't get married that time, the money's put away, and added to the pool for the next house-party. George gasped. This revelation of life below stairs in the stately homes of England took his breath away. Then astonishment gave way to indignation. "'Do you mean to tell me that you, you worms, made Lady Maud the prize of a sweepstake?' Albert was hurt. "'Who are you calling worms?' George perceived the need of diplomacy. After all, much depended on this child's good will. "'I was referring to the butler. What's his name? Keggs?' "'He ain't a worm. He's a serpent.' Albert drew at his cigarette. His brow darkened. "'He does the drawing, Keggs does, and I'd like to know how it is he always manages to cop the favourite.' Albert chuckled. "'But this time I'd done it proper. He didn't want me in the thing at all. Said I was too young. Tried to do the drawing without me. Clip that boy one side of the head, he says, and turn him out. He says. I says. Yes, you will, I says. And what price me going to his lordship and blowing the gaff, I says. He says. Oh, all right, he says. Have it your own way, he says. Where's your five shillings, he says. Here you are, I says. Oh, very well, he says. But you'll have to draw last, he says, being the youngest. Well, they started drawing the names, and of course Keggs asked to draw Mr. Bing. Oh, he drew Mr. Bing, did he? Yes, and everyone knew Reggie was the favourite. Smiled all over his fat face, the old serpent did. And when it come to my turn, he says to me, Sorry, Elbert, he says, but there ain't no more names. They've give out. Oh, they have, have they, I says. Well, what's the matter with giving a fellow a sportin' chance, I says. How do you mean, he says. Why, write me out a ticket marked Mr. X, I says. Then if her ladyship marries anyone not in the house party, I cop. All right, he says, but you know the conditions of this here suite. Nothing don't count, only what takes place during the two weeks of the house party, he says. All right, I says. Write me ticket. It's a fair sportin' venture. So he writes me out me ticket, with Mr. X on it. And I says to him all, I says, I'd like to have witnesses, I says, to this here thing. Do all you gents agree that if anyone not in the house party, and whose name ain't on one of the other tickets, marries a ladyship, I get the pool, I says? They all says, that's right. And then I says to him all straight out, I says, I happen to know, I says, that her ladyship is in love with a gent that's not in the house party at all. An American gent, I says. They wouldn't believe it at first. But when Keggs had put two and two together, and thought of the one or two things that had happened, he turned as white as a sheet and said it was a swindle, and wanted the drawing done over again. But the other says, no, they says, it's quite fair, they says, and one of em offered me ten bob slap out for my ticket. But I stuck to it, I did. And that, concluded Albert, throwing the cigarette into the fireplace, just in time to prevent a scorched finger, 
That's why I'm going to help you. There is probably no attitude of mind harder for the average man to maintain than that of aloof disapproval. George was an average man, and during the degrading recital, just concluded, he had found himself slipping. At first he had been revolted, then, in spite of himself, amused, and now, when all the facts were before him, he could induce his mind to think of nothing else than his good fortune in securing as an ally one who appeared to combine a precocious intelligence with a helpful lack of scruple. War is war, and love is love, and in each the practical man inclines to demand from his fellow-workers the punch rather than a lofty soul. A page-boy replete with the finer feelings would have been useless in this crisis. Albert, who seemed, on the evidence of a short but sufficient acquaintance, to be a lad who would not recognize the finer feelings if they were handed to him on a plate with watercress round them, promised to be invaluable. Something in his manner told George that the child was bursting with schemes for his benefit. "'Have some more cake, Albert,' he said ingratiatingly. The boy shook his head. "'Do,' urged George. "'Just a little slice.' "'There ain't no little slice,' replied Albert, with regret. "'I've et it all,' he sighed and resumed. "'I got a scheme.' "'Fine. What is it?' Albert knitted his brows. "'It's like this. You want to see her ladyship, but she can't come to the castle, and she can't come to you, not with her fat brother dodging of her footsteps. That's it, ain't it? Or am I a liar?' George hastened to reassure him. "'That is exactly it. What's the answer?' "'I tell you what you can do. There's the big ball to-night, cause of its being is Nibs coming of age to-morrow. All the country'll be here.' "'You think I could slip in and be taken for a guest?' Albert snorted contempt. "'No, I don't think nothing of the kind, not being a fathead,' George apologized. "'But what you could do is this.' I heard Keggs talking to the housekeeper about having to get a lot of tempy waiters to help out for the night. George reached forward and patted Albert on the head. "'Don't mess my hair now,' warned that youth coldly. "'Albert, you're one of the great thinkers of the age. I could get into the castle as a waiter, and you could tell Lady Maud I was there and we could arrange a meeting. Machiavelli couldn't have thought of anything smoother.' "'Mac who?' one of your ancestors. Great schemer in his day. But one moment. Now what? How am I to get engaged? How do I get the job? That's all right. I'll tell the housekeeper you're my cousin. Been a waiter in America at the best restaurants. Home for a holiday. But he'll come in one night to oblige. They'll pay you a quid. I'll hand it over to you. Just, said Albert approvingly, what I was going to suggest myself. Then I'll leave all the arrangements to you. You'd better, if you don't want to make a mess of everything. All you've got to do is come to the servants' entrance at eight sharp tonight, and say you're my cousin. That's an awful thing to ask anyone to say. Pardon? Nothing, said George. End of chapter 11